We're in Revelation chapter 14, and if you've been here the past couple weeks, you might remember uh, that the, the dragon, the devil, that ancient serpent has been thrown down, he's been conquered, he's a loser, and uh, so now his job is to, he is trying to make war on the saints, he is making war on the people of God, and in chapter 13 we beheld this disturbing spectacle of a beast rising out of the sea, dragon-manipulated political power, and a beast rising up from the land, dragon-manipulated religious power. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, I refer you to the podcast. But, uh, but this terrifying spectacle. And I've been also, I have to confess, I've been a little discouraged. I've been watching the news, too. Um, there's war in Ukraine. There's war in Israel. And I just keep thinking, this is not going to end well. I don't see how this, any of this ends well. And sometimes life can feel like that when you're trying to follow the land, doesn't it? It's just, it's just discouraging and grinding, and it feels like it's never going to end. Like, is there anything better? Or is, this just, is history just repeating itself in this cyclical, uh, beast-driven uh, cycle of terror and disturbance? Seems like things are never going to get better. But John says that things are not as they seem. So, here's the question this morning. What is mightier than the image of the beast? What is mightier than the dragon? What is mightier than the seeming rampant discouragement and despair that seems to be ruling our world? Is there anything mightier than that? Chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold... On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Behold, slow down, look, Mount Zion. Mount Zion, to any first century Jew or early Christian, is the place of victory. One of the most famous Psalms, Psalm 2, says that the nations, it says, Why do the nations rage against the Lord? All of the earth is raging against God and against his anointed. But the Lord's Messiah, in the middle of all of this, is victorious, the psalmist says. And there's the key line, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the mountain of victory. So obviously, we're expecting to see a conqueror standing up there. God is going to conquer in the end. So we're ready to see the lion, the conqueror of Judah. But John sees a lamb. John sees Jesus, this lamb, looking at standing as if he had been slain, who conquered by laying down his life. You see what a paradoxical, strange image this is. What conquers the beast? The slain lamb. And with him, 144,000. We first met this crew back in chapter 7, and you might remember from Alex's sermon that this is John's way of referring to the people of God. Chapter 7, verse 4, John hears, always pay attention to what John hears and then what John sees. Uh, John hears the number of those whom God has sealed, and it's, quote, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. That's what he hears And then he sees, he looks, and chapter 7, verse 9, Behold, 
a great multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And Alex said the point here is to show that God's redeemed people are complete, complete, 12 times 12, 144. They're complete, complete, and mega, 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 10 times 10 times 10. For those of you who didn't learn your multiplication tables, 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10 is 144,000, okay? So this is God's complete, complete, mega, mega, mega people of God, rooted in Israel, rooted in Abraham's offspring, but encompassing every tribe and people and nation and language. This is the true Israel, and it's vast. So be clear, this is a vision of Jesus standing victorious with his people. What is mightier than the beast? What is mightier than the dragon? What is mightier than uh, the seemingly impenetrable arms race that's happening all over the world? What's, what's mightier uh, than economic forces? The lamb standing on Mount Zion with the 144,000. And this text tells you about the future that God has for you in the gospel. This is personal. Three promises that are yours in Christ Jesus. Uh, first, you will belong. You will belong. Look at verse 1, chapter uh, 14, verse 1 with me. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember, we just met a group in chapter 13 who have the name of someone else written on their foreheads. Anybody remember who it is? The beast, right? The, the name or the number of his name, 666, written on their foreheads, symbolizing falling short, falling short, falling short. Would you like to have the falling short, falling short, falling short name written on your forehead? Ah, but this 144,000, this complete, complete, mega, mega, mega group, they have the name of God written on their foreheads. The name of God. Uh, in the Bible, names are more than just names. They represent a person's entire character, a person's entire reputation. Uh, they have meaning. They're not just randomly ascribed from picking out the baby name book and whatever sounds good. Uh, the point is that God has marked his people with his name, with his reputation. What happens to God's people, if you're in Christ, what happens to you is a reflection of, uh, upon God's character because you belong to him. You are his. So he has a vested interest in order to preserve his own glory, he will preserve those who he has bought. Does that make sense? Um, here's a perfect example. Uh, there is, I'm a little bit of a bike geek, and some of the best uh, steel bikes made in the 1980s, again, I'm totally geeking myself out here, but uh, were made by a guy named Eddie Merckx. And um, Eddie Merckx once made this super light steel frame that the pro team 7-Eleven used back in the late 1980s. And these were such great bike frames. They were just super fast. They were quick on the acceleration, great around the corners, great going uphill. And so a bunch of the people on the team said at the end of the season, hey, I want to buy this off you. Can we keep this bike frame? And he said, absolutely not. He took all of them back. 
every single bike frame. And they're like, why? He said, ah, but these are really lightly made, and I know that these are great for one season, but after two or three, they're gonna fail. And they're gonna fail as you're plummeting down a mountain at 60 miles an hour. And I don't want my name attached to that. God has his name attached to you. He will not let it fail. They belong to him because he redeemed this people. That's how his name is attached to you. He redeemed you. In verse 3, John calls them the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. In verse 4, he says, these have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and for the Lamb. What's that word redeemed? It comes from the root agorazo, which means to buy. This is a marketplace word. The 144,000 who had been bought from the earth. Same word in 1 Corinthians 6.20. You are not your own. You were bought. You were redeemed with a price. Same word in 2 Peter 2.1. Peter tells his churches that God is the master who bought you. You belong. Uh, being a pastor has reinforced to me time and time again a lesson that I first learned at the middle school lunch table. Does anybody remember that terrifying place? It's the first day of school and you walk in and it seems like everyone has a place to sit. Everyone belongs except for one person, you. And many of us, though we grow into adult life, continue to live out little experiences of the middle school lunch table again and again and again. Do I belong here? Um, we're desperate to belong. We want to be known and valued and cared for. We want someone to bear witness to our existence, to ascribe it value and say, you matter. Well, guess what? The lamb does that. He has done that. For reasons beyond my understanding, uh, when we were yet sinners, the lamb redeemed us. The lamb bought us. And guess for how much? He didn't buy low and sell high. He bought high at the price of his own blood. So if you cling to him, it's because you belong to him and nothing can undo that. His name is ascribed to you. So first you belong. Second, this is a little tougher one, uh, you will be a profoundly good person. The 144,000 is characterized by goodness. Verse 4. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. We'll get to this, I promise. Uh, it is those who, these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Uh, this is probably the most confusing part of the whole passage. Uh, is John suddenly a misogynist? It's the question. Uh, did he suddenly switch gears and now he's talking about, oh, actually, guy, actually, ladies, sorry, the 144,000 are an elite group of all-male celibates. Oh, sorry, married men. I guess I'm not there either. Uh, no, that's not what he's talking about. That would be crazy. Um, and it doesn't fit the rest of the text either. Um, the key to understanding this strange verse is to remember that there is a marriage happening between the lamb and his people. 
that's going on in Revelation. Uh, and really throughout the whole story of Scripture. In the Old Testament, God says that his, rela- his relationship with his people is like a marriage. He's the husband. Israel is the bride. And as you know, God's people are unfaithful from time to time again. And the Bible uses often sexual language to express this unfaithfulness. Uh, Adultery, defilement, uh, virginity. These are words that have to do, uh, that are, are brought into this discussion of God's covenant relationship with his people. So when we read those words in Revelation, we need to think, oh, maybe he's talking about something more than just sexuality. So, Revelation picks up this marriage theme. Chapter 19, we're going to see the marriage supper where Christ, the Lamb, is finally wed to his people, his bride. And the commentator Ian Paul writes this. He says, God's people are here described as devoted to God, committed to the spiritual task, and purified for union with Christ. Only a wooden literalism which pulls this verse out of its textual, canonical, and theological context could construe its meaning as androcentric, which means man-centered. What's he saying? This isn't about an elite group of celibate male saints. This is about the people of God, devoted, committed, and purified. Is that clear to everybody? The 144,000 follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And they're people of integrity and truth. In their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, if this crowd is perfectly devoted and purified and committed followers of the Lamb who are full of integrity and truth, I don't know about you, I don't measure up. Is that what it is? Do you ever, I hear the dragon speak that to me sometimes. Oh, you know, Ben, in the end, it's just the spiritual elites. He's not going to take you anyways. You're, you're not good enough. You're tainted. You're defiled. Look at what you've done. Look at your past, your history. Look at your present habits, your lack of spiritual discipline. You don't know. Can you, he's just taken the elites. No, that is not the gospel. Remember, this is a redeemed people, a bought people. That means by definition, they were once under different ownership. But the lamb bought them. This was once a defiled people. So how do they get clean? John told us already. Chapter 7, verse 14. They have white robes. They're perfectly clean. How do they get white? They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. What's the price of admission? Who gets in? Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. Oh, but what about the guy whose robe is really dirty for his whole life? And then at the end, he just comes to the fountain right at the very end. He washed his robe in the blood of the lamb. That is what is needed. Nothing more, nothing less. But be forewarned. Um, If you sign on to follow this lamb, if you have his name written on your forehead, 
Once you are his, he will not stop until you are totally clean and totally healed and totally good. Um, I'm talking, of course, about the lifelong process called sanctification, which from our own perspective often feels like one step forward, three steps back. But it's, it's where God's, by God's grace we grow into the reality of our blood-bought justification. God has said, you are mine, you are righteous, you are clean. He has given you a white robe, and right now it looks just a little bit awkward on you, I gotta say. Uh, but guess what? Someday it'll fit just right. That's what he's doing. That's what he's in the process of doing. So this is a vision of that day when it will fit just right. So right now, you and I come as we are, but he will not keep us or leave us as we are. You will belong, you will be deeply good, and third, this is my favorite one, you will be wildly happy. Did you know that? The gospel offers wild happiness unlike anything else in the entire world. It doesn't just offer it, he promises it. Verse 2, I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is the heavenly worship service. This people are joining in, and it is sound like loud thunder. It's like the roar of many waters. Remember uh, the second beast? It looked like a lamb, but it sounded like a what? A dragon. Its voice was like a dragon. The people of God, what does their voice sound like? Sounds just like Jesus is described in chapter 1. Like the roar of many waters. You are made to sound like Jesus. Now... I don't know about you, this doesn't exactly appeal to me, like the idea of just choral singing for all of eternity. No offense. No offense. I'm sorry. I'm, no offense, Anne. I'm, I mean, I'm just not a particularly great at that. C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, there is no need to be worried by facetious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying that they do not want to, quote, spend eternity playing harps. The answer to such people, I love this, is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. All the scriptural imagery, he says, harps, crowns, gold, etc., is of course a merely symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. Musical instruments are mentioned because for many people, not all, Music is the thing known in the present life which most strongly suggests ecstasy and infinity. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, he meant that we were to lay eggs. C.S. Lewis, folks. Mere Christianity, page 137. You and I were created to be wildly ecstatically happy wildly ecstatically happy everything that our culture is 
dying and grasping for some kind of happiness. Everything that Instagram and Snapchat were created to try to deliver, this lamb in the final moment delivers a thousand, a millionfold. And see, you were created to be wildly, ecstatically happy in God. And our, our capacity to be happy has been broken. This is why so often many of us are just really unhappy. It's been broken, but God is fixing it. Someday it will be fully repaired. And in that day, you won't be worried about whether your voice cracks or you, whether you look funny or whether you hit the notes just right. Uh, it, it, you know, again, this is symbolic language for something beyond our capacity to understand. Uh, you will be free of that soul-sucking misery we call self-centeredness. How do I know this? Look at chapter 15, verse 3, uh, and pay attention to the pronouns. Great, this is what they sing, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The new song ain't about you, but you get to sing it. Tim Keller wrote that true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. That's wild happiness. Self-forgetful, ecstatic joy in God. So, if you're discouraged or distracted this morning, if you've been paying attention to the news and not enough attention to what God says, you've given yourself to some lesser God, uh, or invested in some cheaper hope, or just kind of lost sight of where this is all going, I invite you to trust the Lamb. Uh, he bought you at the highest price. He wants you to trust Him. He wants to carry this on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You were made to belong. You were made to be deeply good and wildly happy. That's the life He died to give you, and He will settle for nothing less. Amen.